0: Not terribly long ago, patients getting infections during their hospital stays was thought of as an inevitable and unfortunate byproduct of hospital care. Well, not anymore. By the same token, the scramble, confusion, rush circumstances that often surround someone's care at the end of life, usually in the hospital, has until recently also been thought of as an inevitable and unfortunate byproduct of our healthcare system, turning death into a tragic, costly, and draining experience. Contributing factors include our high-cure, high-tech medicine, that culture, the difficulty many of us have facing the end of life, how doctors have been trained, and uncertainty by family members over what a loved one truly wants. Well, this bundle of barriers is changing, too. Dedicated organizations, individuals, educators, ethicists, and healthcare providers have been on the case for at least the past two decades, and more, I'm sure, and it's been It's become clear to many that one of the most untapped sources for dramatic improvement here, especially or perhaps in the United States, lies outside the medical world and resides with us, adults, friends and family members finding ways to convey to one another theirs and ours, our, excuse me, most heartfelt feelings, philosophies, and preferences about what they and we do and don't want when death is near. We're gathering around the kitchen table, if you will, to have a conversation about normalizing the conversation about end of life on this edition of WIHI. And welcome everyone to WIHI. This is an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare and Improvement. It's offered bi weekly and also for your later listening and convenience via IHI.orgs and on iTunes. So if you know people who hope to uh, tune in today who couldn't remind them, they can listen to the program starting tomorrow morning when we'll have it archived. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. And if you're attending WIHI for the first time, a special welcome to you. On this program, we try to headline and highlight cutting edge innovations, and we're always Always excited by endeavors that keep pushing the envelope of what's possible. On this edition of W I H I, our topic is by no means an easy conversation, but it's an essential one centered on our preferences at the end of life. And as John said, uh, because of the nature of this conversation that we're about to have, and we uh, are very heartened by the tremendous uh, interest in the program. About 2,000 of you signed up for it, so that's fantastic. Um, we may actually, we'll see how busy. We are here, but we may keep the chat open for a few minutes after uh, the top of the hour, and we're also inviting you to continue the conversation on IHI's Facebook page, and uh, many of you maybe already uh, are connected to that. There's a little F Facebook icon at the bottom of IHI's homepage, uh, where you can go right there. We'll remind you of that uh, further into the program. So now, let me offer brief introductions of our guests, and please refer to their longer bios on IHI.org. I can't possibly do uh, justice uh, on our brief time today. It's a pleasure to welcome Ellen Goodman to WIHI. Many of you know her as a Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist, author, speaker, and commentator. And now she can add founder of the Conversation Project to her impressive background, and she's going to tell you more about this initiative in just a minute. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you. He drove all the way from Hanover, New Hampshire to be with us today. Dr. Ira Byock is a practicing physician who directs the Palliative Care Service at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. He is a professor at Dartmouth Medical School and holds the Dorothy and John J. Byrne, Jr., Distinguished Chair of Palliative Medicine. Dr. Bayak has been involved in Hospice and Palliative Care since 1978. He's the author of numerous books, articles, etc. There's an interesting website that sort of puts it all together, and that's a fact that's going to be most evident in just a moment. Welcome to Cambridge and WIHI, Ira. Thanks, Madge. Okay. So no one says you can't join a kitchen table conversation by phone, and that's where we find Dr. Bernard Hemis He goes by Bud Hammes and is the Director of Medical Humanities and Respecting Choices for Gunderson Health System, headquartered in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Bud holds several academic positions, and he also serves as the chair of the National Post-Paradigm Task Force. Welcome to WIHI, Bud.
1: Thank you very much. It's good to be
0: here. Terrific. And then there's Martha Hayward. She joined the Institute for Healthcare Improvement in March 2011 as the lead for public and patient engagement. The focus of her work at IHI is to bring patients and families into the design of our work to focus improvement on patient needs. Martha is a cancer survivor and a founding board member of the nonprofit Women's Health Exchange. She also served on the Patient and Family Advisory Council of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. Welcome back to WIHI. should say. Thanks, Meg. All right, here we go. This is WIHI, almost a thousand of you with us today. That's fantastic. A big welcome to our guests and to all of you. And if you're wondering where did you land, you're tuned into a program that's going to be talking about how to have conversations with those who are near and dear about their and our preferences at the end of life. So, One of the first things I like to do is just establish some very quick thoughts, almost headlines. Uh, I've periodically called these tweets, but I'm not limiting them necessarily to 140 characters (laughs) or less. But they're just short uh, comments, and then I'm going to come back to each of you. So most of you or most of the people I suspect joining uh, WIHI today are actively working on changing the status quo or wanting to surrounding death and dying. In a nutshell, what's the next wave of work needed and why? In a sense, why are we here? Ellen.
2: Well, I'm betting, too, that everybody who's tuned in has a story. Because one of the things we have found when we started the Conversation Project was that everybody had a story about end of life, and yet we all felt alone. And there are some real parallels to other medical health experiences that we've had. For example, a generation ago, everybody... Most people gave birth with their legs in stirrups, you know, tied up. And, and then uh, how did that change? And that changed not because the medical establishment said to fathers, oh, please come in with your video camera and let's have the baby in the bath water and have a doula here. It changed really because women insisted on change. And we believe um, – and it's at the heart of the conversation project that something that we all know should change, which is the way people die and that they're not dying according to their wishes, that is only going to change when change comes from outside the medical world and is brought in to change it. We spent 20-odd years trying to change it from the inside out And it hasn't really been successful. So what we have to do is change the culture and change the norm from not talking about what we want at end of life, to talking about it with the people who are nearest to us. Okay. Thanks so much, Ellen Goodman.
0: Ira, I'll go over to you. Uh, you've been at this a long time, just in a nutshell, because we'll come back to find out more about each of your kind of areas and special sauces. What's the headline here? What, what's new? We, we got you into this, and you've been at it a long time, very quickly.
3: Well, I, I actually think Ellen is exactly right, that um, in addition to excellent medical care, we have to say very, very clearly that the way our loved ones, are cared for through the end of life is not only medical it's frankly personal and the, this culture is so death-defying that we've never seen it in our best interests to, to be cared for well or for our loved ones to be cared for well uh, during this last phase of life. We, we have to take it back. I, off, I also use the analogy of the birthing movement. You know, uh, in the 1960s, it was unheard of for fathers to be in a in a birthing uh, room or in a delivery room. Now we worry if they're not. Um, and in fact, men and women, frankly, took back – on my generation. The boomer generation took back um, uh, pregnancy and childbirth. We said our loved ones' demand must have expert medical attention, but the need for expert medical care does not define this uh, experience as as a medical experience. It's a personal experience. Now that we... Baby boomers have cared for our, many of our parents and in-laws and loved ones, and we know it hasn't gone well. Even those of us who are doctors and nurses have found it's really difficult to do this well. We now are beginning to realize, I sense that there is this this um, touch point, maybe it may be a, a tipping point of cultural maturation, where we're beginning to see this is in our best interest, and we really, in a, in a sense, have to take back Serious illness, dying death and grief, uh, making it our own, demanding that that the way care is delivered. In, incorporates and, and, and at the center is expert medical attention, but also that there's personal attention for how people are, are cared for uh, through the end of life as individuals, families, and
1: caregivers.
0: Okay. Thank you so much, Ira Bayok, Bud Hammes, uh, uh, kind of your quick headline. Uh, we're, we're, we're more, I guess, uh, stating paragraphs, but that's okay. We'll elaborate in just a minute on everything everyone said. But, Bud, what, what's your headline? You've been at this for a while, too.
1: Yes, we have. We've really been working for a long time in Lacrosse to make sure that we both understand and honor what our patients want, what their families want. This time in a person's life is as as is certainly a, a very important stage of life. We should respect it as a very stage important stage of life, and the family's memories and experiences during this time go on to influence relationships and emotional health for a long time after the death of a loved one. So I think as a health system, we need to uh, see this not as a medical event, not as a pathophysiological event, but as a human event, which we have a very high stake in as uh, as human beings individually, but also as communities in how uh, we live our lives out and how we remember lives that have passed.
0: Thank you so much, Bud Hammesout in La Crosse. All right, Martha, kind of in a nutshell, um, I know you've been pretty ramped up about all of this, um, and uh, and I'm going to ask you more about how it connects with uh, the goals and visions about patient public engagement in just a minute, but kind of in a headline sort of way, uh, where, where where have we gotten to now that we're doing this project?
4: Oh, as I'm listening to the others speak, and, and particularly what Bud just said, um, the opportunity here... Uh, that I see is for people to influence the healthcare system. We've too, uh, for too long we've looked at the healthcare system and say and said, look what the healthcare system is doing to us. But this is a situation where people entering into the healthcare system um, need to become prepared. They need to become empowered and ready, and then have the health take what the healthcare system has to offer, which is medical expertise, and use that so that they have a comfortable um, accepting atmosphere where they're learning and they're collaborating uh, with their doctors. I, I had never you, when when uh, Iris said death defying. It's funny that we that term we use is you know it's death defying, and death in this country is death defying, and it, it we don't have the rituals, we don't have the community support, and that's where the change is going to come. And we can bring those, we can bring the the death doulas into the hospital. We can bring our rituals, our comfort, and we can make decisions there that will change not only the lives of the patient, but most profoundly, the lives of the survivors.
0: Okay, thank you, Martha Hayward. All right, I'm going to now circle back uh, to uh, Ellen Goodman as we're talking on WIHI about sort of normalizing conversations about and at the end of life, but uh, in part we're talking about having them long before, uh, perhaps. So uh, if you can bear with me, I want to just quote from a recent essay that uh, Ellen penned for the Harvard Business Review in a section, uh, in the January issue, a section they called, all audacious ideas. The title of the article is Die the Way You Want To. And Ellen writes, the first place for these hard conversations is not in medical offices with doctors who are often uncomfortable and untrained in initiating them. And it's certainly not in emergency rooms or intensive care units. It's at the kitchen table. There we can talk not only about the treatments we want and don't want, but also about values, hopes, and desires for our last days. We can share our wishes with the people who matter and who may end up speaking for us unquote um, now, Ellen, the kitchen table, I was thinking about that. Sounds comfy, and it does sound normal enough. But having conversations there about death and dying can't be a foregone conclusion either. So this has to be one of the reasons uh, why uh, this whole initiative is uh, kind of ramping up and getting ready to launch what you all dubbed the Conversation Project. So explain that um, and, and that motif you've got for the kitchen table.
2: Aside from the embarrassment of having something you've written, read back to I think it still sounds very good. Thank you, thank you. Uh, um, well, yeah, the Conversation Project believes that you can have these conversations, not that they're easy, but one of our goals is to make them easier than they might be otherwise. And one of the things that we have found in listening to people and, to, and in collecting stories, and we're very much oriented towards that, listening and hearing stories. One of the things that we've found is there's a kind of conspiracy of silence that has evolved between, say, parents and children, that children may want to have these conversations with their parents, but they think, oh, God, they're going to think I'm waiting for them to die, Parents may want to have these conversations with their children, but they may think, oh, God, you know, it's going to make my children too uncomfortable. So everybody sits there alone and, by the way, lonely in these thoughts and not able to connect and yet ready. Uh, I agree with what Ira said. I think this conversation <coughs> is at a tipping point. There's been a lot written about it recently. People are sharing and as the baby boom generation, you know, which never had an experience they didn't share, you know, um, I think there is that sense of this being another cultural change movement and, and, and that we are ready if we only get some help in initiating those conversations, and that's where we are, really.
0: Okay, so just very, very quickly, because uh, people will be hearing more about this when we talk about the conversation project, what makes it a project, and what's going to be kind of the look and feel of this or as, as you're all envisioning it right now? What, some of the ingredients, Oh, yes.
2: that's the question you're asking yes, now. Yes. <laughs> just well, some of the components. Uh, we believe it should be story-based. Right now, we've just... Um, been in the process and and have uh, uh, signed on with a, a wonderful agency that 's going to help us create a public media campaign because we believe our project says that we want end of life wishes to be expressed and respected so phase one is the expression and we believe that the best way to start this is with a public media campaign, and so we are just now creating it and en route to uh, launching that okay and but they will. Be stories. There will be conversation starters, which we have already begun to collect, to help people uh, get over that uh, initial hump. And um, uh, we believe that again, that people are ready to do this. They just need those that extra permission and affirmation in that process. And you said about we want this conversation to go upstream, so that it isn't at the crisis moment so that people uh, have some understanding of where their family, loved ones stand. Not that they've got all the questions answered because you do get some cascading medical decisions to be made, but they'll have some understanding which is at the heart of knowing what decisions to help make. Okay, thank
0: you so much. This is WIHI. You were just listening to Ellen Goodman, and we're talking about the conversation project and the environment in which this is growing up uh, and some of the kind of early ingredients uh, of what this initiative is going to look like. Um, Martha, let me ask you, and you started to say this. Maybe you can say just a little bit more. So uh, there are many, so many issues around patient and public engagement uh, as coming on here as the lead at IHI, (laughs) your inbox, I think, filled up very, very quickly. We try to keep Martha on her toes with a lot of emails every day. So this project here, of course, uh, is is a one part of the spectrum of all the kinds of things that we're talking about when we're talking about patient and public engagement. Excuse me, public engagement. What do you think it offers, though, that perhaps it's going to offer for all the areas that we really want to work on uh, at IHI, and all, I'm sure all our, co- excuse me, our colleagues on this show.
4: Well, my perspective on this is that the medical world, the institutions, the office practices, that's where, to be perfectly crass, that's where the the money resides. And there has been, I, I, I was speaking with some people once and I said, this has been the most prepared for revolution in the world because hospitals, office practices, doctors, individuals, all kinds of clinical workers have been preparing for the patients to become more engaged. But... Everyone forgot to tell the patients it was time to get engaged. And who are patients? They're people in the public realm. They're people. And so... The Conversation Project gives us an opportunity to work with the entire population because whether our listeners, whether you're men, you're women, you're young, you're old, I can guarantee one thing in your life beyond taxes, and that is death. And so this is a subject that interests everybody. And the Conversation gives, Project gives us the, the opportunity as IHI to reach into the public realm and and test ways to really reach people and alter their behavior, which ultimately I think will alter The relationship and and, and a a fairly negative culture that exists predominantly here in the United States between the public and the healthcare system. It's time for us all to be working together, and the healthcare system knows that. I work, you know, through through my work in IHI. I spend so much time in healthcare systems, and the amount. And when I when I spoke to the money residing, it's there. There are conferences on this. There are. There's tremendous focus on preparing for, um, but now's time. Patients engagement. engagement and public engagement and now's the time to actually bring those people in and the conversation project is it's deeply meaningful to all of us okay
0: thank you very much that's Martha Hayward and again this is WIHI but Hamas I'm going to bring you in and then I'll go uh, back to Ira Biak excuse me you and your colleagues in La Crosse and at Gunderson Lutheran in particular uh are now legendary with all the work that you've been doing uh, to demonstrate what's possible in terms of focusing a community's attention on end-of-life issues, and a lot of that has centered around advanced directives, um, and of course, we can only hope discussions uh, that have surrounded that. What have you, what do you feel you've accomplished, you and your colleagues, and how might a conversation project in the way that it's being talked about here today help those efforts, maybe push uh, what's been going on in La Crosse and and nationally, because many people are trying to emulate what goes on there. Uh, How might that be helpful?
1: Oh, thank you. Um, Let me talk a little bit that we've been working on this in La Crosse as a, a very focused issue for more than 20 years. Uh, our work started around the realization that we were seeing uh, what I think is seen all over the United States but repeated cases where patients came to our hospital uh, uh, very critically ill likely not to survive or recover and neither the families nor the physicians who cared for them had any idea of what the patient's goals of care were and so they were distressed they were distressed about making the right decision Uh, These decisions are obviously very critically, both morally and medically. And I remember a series of three cases where I had three families within a short period of time end our conversation with this phrase, if I only knew, if I only knew what my mother or father wanted, this decision would be easier. Now, the interesting thing about these three cases is that these were patients of ours who had uh, ongoing Uh, kind of chronic illness. They were not strangers to us, they were in our health system we encountered and and cared for them on a regular basis, but no one in our health system and no one in their families initiated any conversation. So we set out to start uh, to change that uh, and we've done several things. One is we've designed systems to capture documentation, however that occurs, and we do not force people to do legal documents, although that is often a good idea. But uh, we we train health professionals to facilitate conversations. We've engaged the public um, in a kind of social change to understand the value and importance of these conversations with their families, and then we've checked all of this in kind of an IHI fashion to make sure that we were achieving the results that uh, that we wanted to. We now can document that 96% of Lacrosse County residents who die have some type of care plan, the care plans available to the providers who are writing the orders uh, near and at the time of death, and that these are followed 99% of the time. So uh, we've really achieved a a great change, not just in medical culture, but also in community and social culture. Now, what I see is important here in the conversation project is two things. One is engagement in general, uh, because I think the public needs to be empowered But I think more importantly, even than that, is that the conversation is, a project is focused on the conversation and not on the legal document. It is that discussion and the quality of that discussion among family members that is most critical in all of this working. If someone just signs a legal document with their attorney and never talks about that with their family, or if the quality of discussion about that plan is very superficial, It's not going to make any difference at the time it's most needed.
0: Very important point, and uh, hopefully we can uh, pick up on that when we kind of go around again. Um, And in our discussion uh, with everyone uh, who's joined us uh, today, about 1,100 of you. So that's fantastic. Uh, That's Bud Hamas we're just listening to from uh, the – he's director of the Medical Humanities and Respecting Choices for Gunderson Health System in La Crosse. All right, Dr. Ira Biak to my left here. I'm so fortunate that Ira was able to come down from New Hampshire today in Dartmouth-Hitchcock. So uh, we leave it to you to explain <laughs> how, how can the healthcare system uh, receive uh, this kind of more empowered patient. Martha says the healthcare system actually has been meeting about this, thinking about this. Uh, people forgot to tell patients. Uh, many people continue, though, to say, Well, I've got my act together, but then I don't find a very receptive environment, nor do I find the infrastructure for having, uh, even if we've had our great conversation. And Ira, you've been working mm-hmm. very, very hard for years trying to uh, get more and more practitioners to wrap their minds around palliative mm-hmm. care. So I guess I'd love your, you know, state of the state. Um, You don't have to talk to the whole nation here, but state of the state. How have those, where are those efforts, and how might this conversation project enhance what you've been working at?
3: I think the conversation project is, is absolutely critical because it's a piece that hasn't been engaged yet and has, has been missing but I do think that there's sort of a dialectic here uh, and multiple components many of which IHI have, has been contributing to that uh, is necessary for really systemic and cultural change that we all desire um, for one uh, it shouldn't be uh, go unnoticed that many of us have been working in an advocacy and, and activism realm as professionals to uh, set guidelines on best practices and establish best practice to create demonstration projects, such as as uh, the one that Bud uh, has been working on in, in Gunderson Lutheran, which has uh, created its own sort of lever of change, because people refer to, you know, you, you should see what they're doing at Gunderson Lutheran, people say, um, and and actually to set standards of what good care is. That then needs to um, both be used as a, a example of what's possible of excellence, but also the accrediting bodies and the payers uh, and the big purchasers of of healthcare like Leapfrog, need to take those standards and expectations and, and make them uh, um, impose them, if you will, uh, that, that it's not okay anymore to be you know taking somebody to major surgery without having an advanced directive on file or having that documented conversation of who they'd want to speak to if they couldn't speak for, them, for themselves if things don't go well. That then, and it's happened in, in my institution and others, becomes clinical policies within the institution that then that requirement of well we have to have this conversation before i go ahead and have my cancer surgery or before i go ahead and have that dual chamber pacemaker Im- implanted or you know uh, something of that nature have have uh, neo adjuvant you know chemo uh, radiation treatments that then forces a bit the conversation around the the kitchen table because you know, people don't want to talk about this stuff, and I don't think anything that we're going to do is going to make them really relish talking about it. But if there's a reason to, if the doctor says, look, I can't really start this chemotherapy without, without uh, having this on file, and you say, but I thought there's a chance that you can cure me, and the doctor says, of course, but it's important. This is the standard for everyone. This is what we consider to be best quality care. The next thing that should come out of the doctor's mouth is, by the way, I have an advanced directive on file and so does every adult in my family so that we normalize it and we sort of take it back as this is what we do for ourselves. Families then, and here's where the conversation project comes in, you know, the worst thing that when someone we love is seriously ill, the worst thing that we can imagine is that they might die. But, of course, those of us in this, uh, in this studio and Bud and those of us on uh, listening all know that, unfortunately, there are worse things than having someone you love die. There is having them die badly, suffering as they die. And perhaps even worse is later realizing that much of their suffering was unnecessary. So to fulfill our responsibilities to the people we love, we have to have the conversation. We have to know what their values and preferences are. And then in our advocacy for the people we love, we want to work with doctors and, and support the person in, in getting what they can out of the health care system. Uh, consistent with their values and preferences. But that does take advocacy. And our individual advocacy with individual doctors, patients, and institutions is what also moves the system to to uh, respond to the real needs of, of patients and families, I should say persons and their families it 's coming notice it comes all back around where the where the standards and the systems work and the measurement the definitions of what quality is and measuring quality against you know practice all stimulates the conversations and then empowers us as an activated, engaged community to get the best care we can.
0: Okay, you've just been thank you IRA. you've just been listening to um, dr. Ira Biak from Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center. We're about to open up the chat to uh, hear your comments and questions and a uh, couple little housekeeping things about that. I do want to remind you it's true this hour uh, program does go by fast uh, so if we don't possibly get to your question, uh, we invite you to use our Facebook page uh, also as well uh, as the program uh, wraps up. I HI's Facebook page. We may leave the chat um, open uh, even after the top of the hour. I'd like to, though, uh, John, hold one second. I'd like to just give anyone who's heard anything they'd like to comment on, uh, feel free, Ellen, Martha, or Bud. Ellen, anything that you heard that you want to just maybe uh, react to? Well,
2: well, maybe two things. Um, You know, uh, Ira comes from being a doctor. (laughs) I come from being a pre-patient, I guess, person. (laughs) And um, i 'm not convinced first of all, many people end up in end of life situations who were not in contact with the doctor previously right. you know um, and uh, i 'm wondering, and i 'd love to hear from some of your callers uh, whether these conversations are the responsibility of doctors, or whether the best thing that we at the conversation project can do is give the doctors some place to send their patients. That's one of the things that we can do. In other words, a patient comes in and they're uncomfortable with the conversation and we can't train enough of them fast enough to be comfortable in their 15 minutes of designated time. And so they can say, hey, you know, these are the people that you can go to to help you start these conversations among yourselves. And the second thing I just want to add is also about what I said, which is rebuilding a trust relationship. Probably the single phrase that dominated the public image about end of life conversations was death panels. I mean, they, they, so we want to do for the light side what dar- death panels did for the dark side. But death panels was built on the notion that the healthcare system was not to be trusted, that healthcare reform was going to take things away from you, including your life. And what we are saying, if you can reframe this conversation, If you can reframe the the public dialogue and say, in fact, we are giving you what you want. You tell us, to the degree that you can, that we can fulfill it, how you want to die, and then you would be rebuilding and reframing a trust relationship with the medical system. All right. We well, Thank you, Ellen. We've gotten everybody going. All right. We'll, we'll keep uh,
0: this one. Uh, two more minutes. Uh, uh, Ira and then Martha.
3: Well, I just have to respond to Ellen. I, I agree with you uh, mostly. Uh, since since uh, the care and our preferences and values are not strictly medical, they're mostly personal, uh, advanced care planning uh, can be done outside of a, a, a interaction with doctor and patients certainly. It can be done in faith- I think it can be done in senior centers, and there's a whole other, um, um, you know, network of of resources through the Older Americans Act, and lots of community services can be brought to bear to support patients and families, and the sorts of work that we're doing with the Conversation Project and those aids certainly can can happen outside of health care. But I do think that we should expect any physician to be having been trained in medical school to have these conversations. I'm not, I cannot accept as a medical educator that we could graduate another generation of doctors who, who are uncomfortable and have not been trained to have these conversations as a citizen, uh, and a taxpayer a voter i cannot accept that the doctors that we uh, uh, train as a society license as a society reimburse as a society can somehow be untrained and unskilled in these basic uh, uh tasks
0: okay martha thank you ira and uh let's see i'm uh all right i this somebody's just handed me something that um I've got... It. Okay. <laughs> uh, studio in the Raw. Okay, Martha, your, your comment.
4: Well, my comment is right in the middle of this, which is that um, these conversations, what we have seen, what I personally have experienced, is that you start a conversation about end of life. We have to be very careful about saying how, uh, knowing how we want to die, because none of us can know that, and... It, So it it seems almost impossible and daunting to approach that subject. But if you even open up the subject, what happens at the kitchen table is that relationships shift and change. People find – we were at an event the other night, and I was sharing some of my own uh, trepidation about writing down how I would want my death to be. And a woman who was uh, with us, she said, you know – I never thought about it, and as I did, I started to shake. It made me sick to my stomach. And then I wrote down how I would want my death to be, and I felt so peaceful. And that's what we're finding more, is that people come to a place where they feel, they they imagine it, and they become very peaceful. And everybody's uh, decisions may be different. We hear things like, I want to live no matter what. If I can hear, if I can see, if I can touch or feel my family, I want to live, no matter how many machines it takes. Other people say, I want to I want to be in a field, I want to be home, I want to smell home-cooked food. And these are the kinds of things when you start to talk about, it brings up family imagery, it brings up um, family rituals, it brings up all sorts of things that bring people closer. And that's really the conversation as the conversation project. And Ira is absolutely right because phase two of the conversation project is will these conversations be received and we can't any longer train anybody in a a clinical setting to be anything less than receptive and able to direct. It doesn't mean everybody has to sit down with the next person who comes in their office and have these deep conversations. We need resources, and hopefully the Conversation Project will be producing and gathering resources that will really make people effective. Thank you so much. And uh, as you can see, we're in
0: a a very rich environment, and we hope uh, our conversation on WIHI is the first of many, both on WIHI and as we, uh, as the uh, Conversation Project gets ready to launch, and and through others. So, uh, John, just very quickly, um, it looks to me like the, the gates have opened, but if there's anything you need to say, John, Gothier, here uh, just to remind people about uh, chatting. Uh, go ahead, and then we'll I'll, I'll start commenting. I'll start sort of uh, helping to triage some of these questions. Go ahead.
3: Yeah, there are. Uh, there's a great conversation happening in the chat, uh, as always on WHI. Uh, just a reminder uh, to address all your questions uh, in the send to uh, to all participants, and that that way um, everybody sitting at the table can see it on our screen. Right now, I'm getting a lot of private messages, <laughs> and also some messages in the Q&A section. So just make sure that you you address them to all participants, Uh, and that way Martha can see them, Madge can see them, Ira and and Martha can see them as well, Um, and uh, let's get started. Thanks.
0: All right. Thanks so much, John, and thank you for all of you who've already joined in, and as I said, uh, if if we're having a a lot going on here in the chat, which we're thrilled to have, um, we will keep things going a little bit after the top of the hour. So some of you have commented on uh, the comments of our guests, and, and that's terrific, and a reminder that Bud Hammes is with us out in La Crosse, uh, Wisconsin. He's done this work a lot. A number of you uh, are asking, uh, Some somebody said that this conversation, a good conversation might be two hours, and uh, most doctors start looking at their watches after ten minutes. So we, we understand sort of where the, <laughs>
1: where,
0: where we have to, what we're working on. And uh, I, I don't, I'm not trying to be glib. I think that's part of, uh, but what we're trying to do is see, in some ways, almost where we all might meet in the middle, uh, based on, you know, uh, growth, uh, that's going to take place in many, many different corners. Um, I want to, somebody said that, um, it, partly because I feel like the, the conversation project is so anchored in stories. Um, and, uh, most of all, even though we're all talking about all the kinds of changes that need to happen in many, many sectors. So somebody has said, what do you do when, uh, you're trying to have this conversation and the people you maybe want to have the conversation, they just want you to keep it positive, uh, uh, and uh, concerns about that. Somebody's wondering about videos and uh, maybe uh, sharing that. I think that's actually one of the ideas. But I wonder if, you, uh, particularly Martha and Ellen, if you have any examples of, um, I don't know, even kind of little techniques and things that people are learning already just based on, on, on your planning. So um there's a should we ask Bud well I, you know what yeah. uh, Ellen and
4: I had the yeah. privilege of visiting lacrosse Wisconsin, and the work that they're doing there um, they have uh, they have a, a training, and I'm not going to speak any more for you, Bud, but they showed us a video of a conversation between a father and a son. And the question, the the trained individual does not sit down and say, so how do you want to die, sir? We've just been diagnosed with diabetes. Um, There's a series of questions that happen up until then that really start to air... um, a person's sense of their life a person's sense of their quality what what equals quality of life and this son and you know these were just two average people who happened to be in the hospital and the son starts to ask is hearing things for the first time that he's never heard before and it brings this it 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 raises up in terms of the man's relationship with his wife and what his perception of life and death are so i think bud's the person who, who can really shed light on on that question well bud
0: do you- you want to, thanks, Martha. But you want to just comment on that. I uh, maybe just sure. briefly, sort of, w- what's powerful uh, uh, about this and what's instructive. Because part of uh, seems to me uh, this this whole initiative is going to hopefully offer people some good examples, some models, uh, kinds of uh, ways to get started. Uh, so, Bud.
1: Well, uh, the, the first thing I, I want just start with is that. I don't think the issue is so much people don't want to talk, is they don't know how to talk about this issue, and and so they do need some help and guidance, and so and and physicians are a key part of this, but they are limited in the time, and sometimes their training to carry on those conversations, because they do take more than ten minutes, sometimes they do take two hours. So we've trained um, um, a core of what we call advanced care planning facilitators who are typically nurses, social workers, and sometimes chaplains who work as a team with the physician. And these facilitators have a standard approach to the conversation. And so they help the uh, the family have the conversation. They create the space and the safety to have that conversation. But they're able to tie that patient back to the physician when uh, appropriate, needed questions come up about disease, about treatment, about benefits and burdens of this approach or that approach. And we found that this really enhances the ability of the family to talk because they have someone helping them, but also ties them back to their doctor when that tie is really needed.
0: Uh, Ira wants to jump in. Thanks, Bud Hemis. Uh, Ira? Somebody is asking you also to remind everybody about the the four things. (laughs) Uh, that must be code. <laughs>
3: um, <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to throw you on. <laughs> so I'll get to the four things happily in a moment. Yeah. Um, people um, uh, don't want to die badly, that's for sure. And they, or while they want to keep it positive, um, if you ask people really what they matters most when they think about the end of life, the most common response I get is they don't want to be a burden to their family. I don't want to be a burden to my family. And I actually start the conversation these days about advanced care planning by saying that the reason I've had this conversation and the reason that I personally have an advanced directive is uh, because – Uh, For the sake of my wife sitting over here in the corner and my two daughters. Because I know that if I'm in a car accident on the way home from work tonight and and I have a serious head injury, my wife and my two daughters are going to wrestle with decisions that are going to feel very much like life and death decisions. And they're going to be the ones holding the bag. I can't stop that. With or without advanced directives, that's likely who the doctors are going to turn to. But I can help shoulder some of that burden that they're going to feel by, first and foremost, creating a document that gives them clear authority. My two daughters are in their late 20s and early 30s, and, and you know when I tell medical students that they have advanced directives, there's often chuckles, but the fact is that I asked my daughters uh, during the spring of the Shivo case to please fill out advanced directives. Because I said, if tragedy strikes our family, and I can't think of anything worse than one of you being seriously ill, could we at least keep the tragedy within the family? We don't want an ethics committee or a judge or, heaven forbid, the you know Florida legislature to decide what's right for, for our care. Um, and secondly, I want to tell them what I think I might want in that circumstance so that they will feel a little supported and a little less burdensome uh, if they – Um, are forced to make uh, serious decisions. So the four things uh, are – I wrote a book called The Four Things That Matter Most, and they aren't things at all. They're they're 11 words. Please forgive me, I forgive you, thank you, and I love you. And it's meant as four things uh, to say before anyone is forced to say goodbye. It's a way of leaving um, uh, nothing critically important left unsaid. And I would only say that although people think of this in relation uh, to the end of life, uh, of course, you don't have to be dying for those four things to matter. Uh, You just have to be mortal. And in fact, if you are not mortal, (laughs) but you love someone who is mortal, if you're immortal, (laughs) but you love someone who is mortal, well, that's enough to put you at risk. So saying, please forgive me, I forgive you, thank you, and I love you, is often a, a way of uh, helping people to uh, feel that their their relationship is somehow complete and, and a little less burdened if, if one or the other does
0: become seriously ill. Thanks, Ira Biak. And now we're having an interesting conversation about the Conversation Project. Ellen Goodman.
2: Well, I, 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 I thought a lot. We've talked a lot to people of how they started the conversation. One of my favorite stories is from a friend of mine in Maine whose husband is – whose husband – Excuse me, her father is a real taciturn mean stereotype of some sort, and I said, "My God, and she was telling me that she had had the conversation with them. I said, "My God, how did you start?" and she said, first I had two stiff drinks mm-hmm. <laughs> so but in fact, I think one of the cues, one of the things that Iris said is these conversations are about relationships and take place in relationship, and one of the most powerful uh, entries into the conversation, it seems to me, at least from the child to parent, from the adult child to older parent direction, is calling on your parent in your parent's role for help and saying, you know, I'm going to need help. Mm. If you, If I am in the situation that I have to make decisions for you, help me out. And that is almost the success rate of that kind of approach because you're keeping people in a role in which they loving people want to take care of each other and this is a caregiving I mean the conversation project is about caregiving at its at its soul Thanks, uh, Ellen,
0: and uh, I agree, and I, I think uh, by referring to something as the conversation project or having the conversation, uh, I don't think anyone uh, would disagree that this is about often several conversations, uh, and uh, so many of you have, have made that point. Uh, somebody said, uh, Carol Wise said, I assured everyone I was well at the time, and that was very reassuring, so uh, in other words, we're not having this conversation because I am about to tell you of uh, uh some serious illness. Um, And uh, there's a a lot of comments about sort of tools and resources that are out there, and there's no question um, that this project, I think, wouldn't be possible without an awful lot of things that people have been working on as resources uh, for families, for practitioners, um, et cetera. And because I think a a number of you are on the program from the health professional community, uh, you very much want a role. I don't blame anybody for, you know, wanting a role here. So I think, uh, th- I guess I wanted to go back to a point, though, uh, that uh, somebody made here, which is that who who really can be helpful uh, in this conversation and sort of reinforcing people are asking both in the community and also in the medical world, whether we've put too much pressure, in a sense, on doctors themselves. Um, and uh, who else do we need? Uh, who Who else might we maybe have relationships with, in fact, that we want to have these conversations with that, that can be part of it with families. Martha looks like she wants to say something, and then Ira.
4: Well, I'm, I'm going yeah. to go back on yeah. your question just a little bit because what's very much on my mind is to say that these conversations are not uh, – the way that things work now, we often talk about a health care proxy. You have a single individual who is your health care proxy. We have an advanced directive, which is you alone deci- de- de- saying what your um, wishes are. These are not only about relationships, but it's a relationship of many, and this becomes the uh, community. So when, whereas um, the standard is now that you talk to your doctor about it, that's not your community, your community and and I personally uh, live in a situation where my mother um, you know in, in any family there are there may be three sisters and two brothers and an uncle and an aunt and, and two best friends and then the neighbor so that that's your sort of chosen family. There are different nuances and innuendo to all of those relationships particularly between siblings and parents and my mother, for one made my sister her healthcare proxy and um, then came to me and said don't let her keep me alive because she wouldn't even put her cat down when the cat had cancer and she was serious Um, but didn't tell my sister that. So having these conversations are a way of bringing the nuanced minds and the nuanced kinds of love and relationship that you have in your life to the same place that serves who you are. So that those relationship, I think, because death um, is so death defying um, in in our culture it's very divisive and the last thing any of us really want in life is for our uh, legacy to be that we've broken relationships between people who loved us the people who had the the one thing in common was us and that those relationships could have been broken and I think the calming thing that we tend to see as people have these conversations they don't have them just with their mother or their sister or their spouse they have them with a group of people and there's this sense of support. And, you know, our culture, we do so much work here at IHI in, in uh, various countries, and our culture is, is, is not unique to this, but there's so many other cultures who, who death, I, I, I really don't like the words end of life, because when does that begin? Really immediately after birth, right? Um, and I, this sense that death is part of life and that it, yeah. that it contributes to a well-lived life thanks
0: uh Martha Hayward many of you are talking about the role of social workers uh, s- spiritual uh, people who can give counsel uh, chaplains and the like uh, rabbis uh, we're also talking about uh, in some ways uh, really building on as Martha's saying uh, who who you d- decide is, is your family and that in, 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 and can of course mean many different individuals Ira did you want to say something and but well, no, by, by the way but we haven't forgotten about you I, I think all of this is is uh, on Point. I,
3: I do. I would include faith communities in that. Um, I think if you want to be patient and truly person-centered, um, it's true. And I, I actually. Do think we have to keep our expectations very high, higher than they've been about healthcare systems, doctors, nurses, social workers within healthcare systems. This is part of a um, of a complete data set on any individual patient. We we know their allergies. You know we uh, know what medications they're taking. We need to know uh, at least at very least who they would want to speak for them if they were unable to speak for themselves. That not having that on a chart uh, feels to me that we haven't completed the basic data set. And, and that then provides, a again, a reason that they have to have that conversation. But the conversation I think is well had in faith communities, in senior centers, with uh, um, uh, case managers who may be based outside of healthcare and geriatric case managers nowadays. Um, it can happen in neighborhoods. It can happen in any number of, of different ways. Uh, but it has to happen. And then get communicated with the doctor, perhaps reviewed with one's doctor, and and kept on file, so you know it 's many as usual the The answer is many uh, different things have to come together what we 're trying to do here is make this the new normative. And I have to say, as I travel around and speak, there is really strong consensus about this. I have many friends within the evangelical community. They actually endorse all of this. They, they don't agree with the death panel thing. That was, that was a, a strategic tactic by some of the uh, politicians that, that you know they got sort of sucked into, but they don't actually believe that. They think that these conversations are, in fact, the right way to be planning health care.
0: Thanks so much, Ira Biak. A, a couple of quick things. Uh, don't forget, if for any reason you lost your audio, there's a, the number on your screen. I'll repeat it, 866-469-3239, and you can uh, re- rejoin us. Uh, I'm going to ask Bud Hamas to jump in here, but I do want to remind everyone if you like this conversation uh, and you're interested in a whole notion of rediscovering conversations, that is the theme of this year's International Summit that's taking place in Washington, D.C., and there's more information. Uh, it's taking place in March, and the information is on the website. It's IHI's second largest conference, focused a lot on the outpatient setting, uh, but each year over 1,300 healthcare leaders and professionals from primary care and community settings come together, and as I said, Rediscovering Conversations is the theme, and the two major keynote speakers this year, Ellen Goodman and IHI President and CEO Maureen Bisagnano, so another opportunity to learn more, and I cannot read this. The What does that say, John?
3: Well, it says that it was just confirmed that Don Berwick will be participating as a third uh, keynote
0: speaker. Oh, okay, at, uh, fantastic. All right, you heard it here on WIHI. Breaking news. <laughs> Breaking news that Don Berwick will be uh, joining that event as well. All that information from March 18th, 20th in Washington, D.C., it's all on IHI.org. But I'm sorry, I know we, we're just talking so much here, having our own conversation conversation uh, jump jump back in here and feel free to pretty much respond to anything you've heard <laughs> All
1: right. well I just want to I agree with IRA and so many of the other comments that these conversations can occur in many places they can be uh, facilitated and guided by many different people what we've learned in Lacrosse is if we if we standardize the training for these facilitators uh, it really it really uh, adds power because facilitators are are approaching this with the same language, uh, the same types of questions, and planning for the same kind of events. And this really helps physicians when they talk with their patients, because no matter where the patient started or who else the patient talked to, the physician can know where to pick the conversation up. Um, The second thing I'd add is that we've really decided that we need to do planning in stages. So what, what we plan for the healthy adult is different than what our conversation is with someone who has advanced illness and then someone who may only live the next year. There's at least three stages of planning that has different content and different approaches. And my final comment is that all of this, while vitally important, can never really go too far unless our health system and its delivery changes so that we give patients a much more flexible options about palliative care at a much earlier stage. Um, if, if our only options for patients are go see your doctor and come to the hospital when you're sick or go to hospice, that's too simplistic. And we'll never capture what patients really need unless we change that delivery system as well.
0: Thanks so much, uh, Bud. Have us out in La Crosse, and perhaps that, what you've just said, Bud, maybe that's one of the issues behind it. There's been a just another study that came out that is suggesting that people may be turning to hospice uh, uh, later uh, than they have been, uh, not taking advantage of what hospice has to offer, and so there may be a whole set of things here which uh, sometimes uh, become very sort of frightening uh, things, like, do you want to cross over to this side or not? And we're talking about maybe having something happen uh, normalizing on a continuum. There's been a question here about tools, and I know many people have chatted in tools that exist uh, from many different uh, uh, organizations and uh, both in and out of the healthcare system. Ellen or Martha, is that one of the uh, hopes or uh, one of the plans for the conversation project uh, is to offer tools?
2: Yeah, I mean, tools may be Scripts or tools, maybe. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's helpful to people when they want to have a conversation is that they see something. They see a story. They, you know, so some there, there may be a whole variety of there are a whole variety of uh, aids and tools. Um, uh, uh, we probably will not be creating our own <laughs> variation on the theme of polster molster, uh, but that we will be concentrating on how you have the how you open up uh, and make these conversations easier for people. Okay. Well, a lot of interesting themes. We've come to the top of the
0: hour. I do, again, want to uh, invite people, if you'd like to, we'll keep the chat open uh, a little bit beyond. Um, I want to remind people that the Conversation Project is getting ready to launch, and they're in that phase right now over the next uh, couple of months. Uh, there's a placeholder website, www.theconversationproject.org. It's, it's a lot. Watch this space, I think, uh, uh, if you'd like to uh, email with any questions, you can email the Conversation Project at ihi.org or info at ihi.org. And uh, what I'd like to do, even as we wrap up here, is uh, I want to give uh, everybody a chance—very, very quick chance—to uh, say you've just tuned to this program today. What would you do with what you heard today? What would you do with it tomorrow? Anybody? I th- oh, well, oh, go ahead, I'll Ellen. bet you there are a
2: lot of people <laughs> listening in who haven't had the conversation. So my challenge would be <laughs> to have the conversation, let us know what you did, what it, what happened from it. Send us your story. Thank you, Ellen. Ira?
3: I think everybody who's a clinician here and who's been challenged uh, to have um, uh, their institution and their colleagues ha- uh, start these conversations, I would say you need to do two things. First, you have to be able to say to people, we do this for everyone, so that you're normalizing it within your institution. You're not picking out the adults who you think are seriously ill or about to be seriously ill, so you destigmatize having this conversation. Secondly, you have to be able to say to the- each patient that you introduce this to and encourage them as you're encouraging them to have the conversation, I have an advanced directive on file, and so do the adults in my field. Family. That's the best way to sort of uh, put a uh, put a pin in that uh, balloon of tension and and normalize this so that people get a sense that it is in their best interests.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Ira Bayoc, and before him, Ellen Goodman. Martha, any uh, parting words? What what would you do with this tomorrow?
4: Well, I know exactly what I would do. First, I'd go running from the room and pretend I didn't hear the program, okay. <clears throat> because it might it might set me on a, a new path. <clears throat> But then I also know that on my ride home and my commute, and this is what's going to end up happening to me today because it's already started in my brain, is to really think back at those moments uh, of my grandfather, of my father, of my son, all whose funerals, you know, my aunt, people whose funerals I've, I've attended, and what were the moments of comfort, whose lives I've been in and whose end of lives I've been in and what were the moments of comfort or peace or coming together. And I'm going to do that. I'm going to make a point of doing that because I have not had this conversation with my children um, and I have two adult children. And I'm going to do that and really think about um, what I would want it to look like for me. Would I want those, is there anything that I could do to help uh, facilitate those moments of comfort for the people around me. Thank you so much, uh, Martha Hayward.
0: Bud, you get kind of the last word, although we'll let our, our chatters keep going here. Um, kind of, what, what would you do? Uh, well, I, I just want to
1: yeah. add on to what Ira said, and I think that every health system represented on this call should consider that if they don't know what the patient wants, doesn't know their goals of care, that they have made a mistake and have created an error, and it should be – Treat it with the same attention as any other medical error, hear, hear. such as giving a medication to someone when we know they, have, they are allergic to it. This is, a, this is a, a, a problem about medical mistake, And we make a mistake when we don't have these conversations and when we don't document the content of the patient's preferences.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Bud Hamas. All right, Bud Hamas, Ira Byock, Ellen Goodman, Martha Hayward, and all of you who took part in our conversation, the first of many about the Conversation Project and the ingredients uh, going into this. A reminder that on the next wi 9th 2012, the social imperative to demonstrate that better care equal lower costs. We were just speaking that Donald Berwick will be uh, joining us uh, at the summit, and Washington uh, in in March. He'll also be my guest on the February 9th W I H I with Jared. Excuse me, Jerry Shea, who's assistant to the president for external affairs of the AFL C I O. That's going to be a really really interesting conversation as well. That webpage, by the way, is now live. And if you want to go register, you can. A reminder that you've uh, if you liked what you heard and you want to share it, and if that's one of your action steps uh, tomorrow, is say, look, I heard this interesting program. And there's something in the making here. Conversation Project. The archive uh, of the show will be available tomorrow morning at IHI.org as well as on iTunes, and you can also find some related resources. So the people who help make WIHI possible, in addition to all of you and my guests today, are Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Allison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morrison, our Northeastern Co-op, Rachel Yates. We have some nice music that opens and closes the program. Original Arrangements by Aaron Flanders on Guitar and Miguel Sapasoa on piano. It's my privilege privilege, let's get that word out there, to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all, and to have these kinds of conversations. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. We'll leave the chat going for a few more minutes. We'll see how much activity there is, and we invite you, as John said, head on over to the IHI Facebook page. Uh, let us know what you thought of today's program. When you download the show, we didn't have a lot of slides today, but you can download what we had and uh, what we did offer, and there's also a brief survey. We'd love it if you would let us know uh, if you found the show today valuable. Good day,
2: everyone.